Listen then as I read from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. This is what Holy Scripture says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the power of God, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have your Bible with you and, and looking around during the scripture readings, it looked like many of you did. Uh, that's always a good sign. Uh, I'd love for you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. I asked Paul uh, what he'd like me to speak on uh, this morning. We, we planned uh, this visit a number of weeks ago, and I said, well, you know, you, is there a series you're working on? Is there a theme that you're trying to develop? And he wrote back very helpfully, preach on whatever brings you the most joy. I felt like that was a trap. <laughs> because if you preach on anything other than Jesus when receiving those instructions, you are by definition not a Christian. However, I am taking the liberty this morning to alter the instructions that I was given just slightly and I am going to preach on something that would bring me great joy if you were to do it. Specifically, I'm asking that you would pr pray regularly for your pastor. And toward that end, we're going to read from Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 in just a moment. While you find that passage, hopefully you've found it already, let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul from prison, we believe, in Rome to the believers, not just in Ephesus, but also around Ephesus. Uh, your, your church is a planting church, as, as is ours, and uh, so you may have a, a sense of affinity for the church in Ephesus. I don't know if you know this, but in some of the earliest manuscripts we have of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the to the Ephesians part is actually left blank. And uh, the belief of many scholars is that it was intended as a circular letter to the churches in Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus, but also to the several churches that had been planted around Ephesus. Ephesus was a regional center. It was, in a sense, like Toronto. Toronto is a financial center. It's a cultural center. And uh, Paul was in Ephesus for quite some time. 
As was his habit, he preached in the synagogue until he got kicked out. Uh, it took varying amounts of time in, in the cities that he visited for him to be kicked out, but eventually he almost always was, and he found a new place to preach, and we're told in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, that that uh, new place was the hall of Tyrannus. So Acts 19, 10 says, this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, when you hear that, all the residents of Asia, you have to remember how the word Asia is used in the Bible and in biblical times. It refers to Asia Minor, and Ephesus was a regional center there. So all the people in that region, in that Roman province, were hearing the gospel because it was being preached in Ephesus, and then people were taking it back to their homes and villages. And so churches sprung up all over the region. And Paul was, in a sense, the spiritual father of those churches. And so from his imprisonment, he wrote to them. I'm not sure how much you know about the internal structure of Ephesians. It is a, a delightful letter, and it has, it has a classical Pauline structure, which means that it's six chapters long. The first three chapters are about the content of the gospel. Paul tells them what to believe. And then in the last half of the gospel, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he tells them how to behave. Isn't that a wonderful balance? Both are important. You know, when I started in ministry, I started in September 1994. Now, that sounds rather grandiose. It's not, not as though they... they I went up into the pulpit for the first time, and uh, like Moses ascending Mount Sinai, my first assignment actually was to keep the junior highs from disturbing the service, uh, while more and more important people were doing things in there. Uh, but nevertheless, I did start in September 1994, and, and I grew up in the church, of course. Uh, my parents were saved, well, my mom was saved in the Canadian Revival, and then my dad was saved as my mom continued to unpack the Canadian revival over the dinner table for months and months and months. But so my parents were saved in the 70s. So I kind of grew up in the church in the 80s and, and 90s. And, and I would say that in general, in the 80s and 90s, the gospel in evangelical churches in Canada was assumed. And so a great deal of the preaching was moralistic. It was about how to behave as a, as a good person and what to do and what not. But of course, you know what happens when you assume the gospel. If you assume the gospel for 20 or 30 years, you get what? You get a church full of people who actually don't know the gospel and who are basically moralists and legalists, and that's what we ended up with in the late 90s. But then there was kind of an overcorrection, and in the early 2000s, you had an emphasis on gospel-centered preaching, which oftentimes meant simply preaching the center, the marrow of the gospel, without ever working out its implications. And so every sermon was on how Jesus lived a perfect life, how he died a sacrificial death, how he was in the tomb, how he rose again on the third day, how he ascended to the Father's right hand, and how he lives right now evermore to make intercession for us, all of which is glorious and wonderful and marvelous. But what happens when for 15 years you don't ever talk about how to behave? What happens when for 15 years you don't ever unpack the implications of the gospel? Well, wonder of wonders, you get Christians who believe well and behave poorly, which is, I think, you could argue uh, where we ended up uh, and where we are now. And so it's very important that we take our cues from the Bible. And in the Bible, we see this glorious balance. 
Uh, it's almost like the double beat of a heart, isn't it? Where we just move so naturally from uh, what we must believe, what, it, what we must know about who God is and who we are and how God has saved us in Jesus Christ, and then right away into what that means for us in terms of how we live and breathe, move, and serve in this world. The hinge in Ephesians, you can see that for yourself, is Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, where Paul says, I therefore, you're always looking for, a, when you're trying to find the hinge in Pauline letters, you're looking for therefore. It's usually right in the middle. The, in uh, Ephesians and both First Thessalonians, it's right in the middle. Three chapters and three chapters. It's beautiful. Romans is a bit distorted in terms of the shape because there's an extended kind of explanation for the mystery of why the, Gent- or why the Jews have not embraced the gospel. But then you get that therefore in Romans 12. Romans 12.1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, here's a therefore. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And from this point on, Paul begins to talk about how people who've been saved by grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus should live worthy of the calling to which they are called. We're in Ephesians 6, which as you can see is the last section in the letter. And in this last section, Paul wants them to be aware that as they live worthily, as they live out their calling in this world, they will be opposed. The big truth in chapter 6 is that you have an enemy. You have an enemy who doesn't want you to believe right and who doesn't want you to behave right. And he is actively working against you. He is working to distract you. He is working to divide you. He is working to deceive you. He is working to deter you. But you must stand firm. And you must pray. Now, it's, it's the first part of that imperative that we often focus on. The you must stand firm. We love that. It's very manly and exciting. Uh, and, and so, of course, um, we, we focus on that. And, uh, and we talk about, uh, you know, putting on the armor of God. It's almost impossible to go to VBS and not uh, find yourself in the middle of an extended treatment of the armor of God, isn't it? I remember, I remember actually in 1993 when I was an intern. I think it was 1993. I think it was the last year I was an intern at my home church. Uh, dressing kids up in my smelly old hockey equipment and teaching them, as was originally done in Ephesus, uh, how to put on the armor of God, right? You've got the shoulder pads of faith, the hockey stick, which is the sword of the Spirit, the shin guards of gospel readiness. You understand. Marvelous. But we don't often hear sermons on the last three verses, do we, having to do with prayer. And probably part of that is just that most pastors feel awkward uh, preaching on passages that might appear to be primarily to their own benefit. And so when I'm not given specific instructions about what I am to preach on, uh, and sometimes I am, but when I am not, I typically like to 
preach on things that I would like to have preached in my church. And this is one of those topics. Uh, pastors need people to pray for them. And it, it seems sometimes difficult to ask. Uh, one of the things as, as I get older, uh, I, uh, Paul is actually eight years older than me. I feel it's important for you to know that. <laughs> it's not in the text, but I just I want, if you're a note taker, that's something that you could write down. But the older that I, that I get, uh, the more aware I am of my need for prayer. Pastoring is an impossible task. Uh, this is not my best recruiting speech for the ministry, but it, but it is an impossible task. On its best day, it's an impossible task. And the older I get, the more aware I am of that, which is something of a paradox because, of course, the older you get, the more equipped you are for ministry. I know the Bible probably 30 times better than I did in September of 1994. I'm significantly less heretical than I was in, in September of 1994. But the funny thing is, when I went into ministry, I was very sure of my ability to make a contribution Right? I was like, you know, Holy Spirit, I'll keep you on speed dial. I'll call you if I need you. But I got this. Right? I got a good haircut, and I'm hip with the kids. And, you know, I got, I got three pretty awesome sermons. I got this. I will call you if I need you. Now I can't get out of bed in the morning without the help of the Holy Spirit, and I know it. Uh, who, who is sufficient for these things? And, and so I am massively and instantly aware of my need for prayer. And so it would just be a great delight to see more prayer stirred up in this place for my brother Paul. Towards that end, hopefully you have your Bible open now to Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. I know you read it, but let's read it again. We'll have a particular focus on the last three verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I mentioned, Paul's purpose in this closing part of chapter 6 is to remind these good folks that they are opposed, that they need to be vigilant and alert, and they need to be constant 
in prayer. And to pray, specifically, he says, for me. The great apostle was not too proud to ask for prayer, and neither should pastors be today. Charles Spurgeon said famously, in answer to the question of why his ministry was so fruitful and powerful, he said, my people pray for me. Every pastor needs an army of people praying for him, and to help us in that task, we'll look at the text we've just read. And doing that, I think we have some guidance, first of all, in praying with a sense of spiritual urgency. There is peacetime praying, and there is wartime praying. And here the apostle is alerting the Ephesians to the fact that they are engaged in a spiritual conflict. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're in a war, Paul says, but not just any war, and perhaps not the war that you think. Peter O'Brien says, hopefully here, Paul's cogent point here is that the Christian life as a whole is a profound spiritual warfare of cosmic proportions in which the ultimate opposition to the advance of the gospel and moral integrity springs from evil supernatural powers under the control of the God of this world. Do you understand that? I'm not asking that rhetorically. I'm asking that actually. Do you understand that? I think 20 or 30 years ago, the evangelical church in North America was guilty of denying that there was any kind of war at all. We were a peacetime church, very much so. We were at home in the culture. So much so that when I started in ministry, all the talk was about how to narrow the gap between the church and the culture. There was this ridiculous idea, it seemed smart at the time, that you know the church and the culture were so close together, if we could just narrow the gap, like you know the gap at the subway where they say, you know, mind the gap? We, we said that this little gap here is making it difficult for people to enter into the church. If we could just close that gap, Right? If, we could, if we could have better chairs and if we could sing snappier songs we could just, and, and, and if we could get a few weird people to act a little less weird, uh, then it would, it would narrow the gap, as it were, and people would just come flying into the church. Instead, the opposite happened, didn't it? We had people flying right out the back door and into the culture we were trying to be so close to. The good news now with the culture having diverged so dramatically from the church is that that strategy is as ridiculous as it ought to seem. And so now we just do church, and we let the Holy Spirit zip people over the giant gap that actually exists. But 20 years ago, I think we were at home in the culture. We sent soldiers out, but we certainly didn't fight and wrestle at home. We foolishly thought that our battle had been won, but of course, we were guilty of misidentifying cultural Christianity as the real thing. The point is, we weren't aware that we were in a battle. That was the mistake we were making 30 years ago. It is certainly not the mistake we're making today. The mistake we're making today is in misidentifying the enemy. We know we're at war, but we think that we're at war with other people. We think we're at war with the government. We think we're at war with the mainstream media. We think we're at war with special interest groups. God help us, we think we're at war with other churches. When in fact, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear 
that we are at war with the devil. It's very important for us to understand that. Because, of course, we're not equipped to make war with physical or political enemies. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual, the Bible says. They have divine power to destroy spiritual strongholds. Jesus didn't issue swords or guns. He gave us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Listen, friends, beware of voices right now within the Christian community who want to make people the problem and politics the solution. That is a deception of the evil one. That is him trying to lure us into a fight for which we are not equipped and to which we were not called. So pray for Pastor Paul with an awareness of the battle that we are all engaged in as believers. Pray that he would be strong in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray that he would be skillful in dividing the word of truth. Pray for his time in the study. Pray for his commitment to the authority of Holy Scripture. Pray that he would close his ears to the siren's song of cultural warfare and political obsession. Pray that he would take every thought captive to Christ and that he would not allow himself to be taken captive by the spirit of the age. And pray also for his family. You know, if I were the devil, and I'm not, but if I were, and if I had access to a limited number of forces, and I wanted to destroy the cause of the gospel in Canada, then I would surely target pastors. And I would most specifically target their wives and their children. I was very aware of this. Uh, we had a TGC meeting, and it was just before... Um, it was just before the pandemic. It was in Montreal, and uh, the the circle, the whole council was gathered together, and we were going around the room, and everybody was kind of sharing where they were, and the um, the impression it was made quite an impression. It, it was remarkable the percentage of pastors, and they're mostly they're mostly guys my age, you know, e even even up as high as Paul's age, who who again is anyway. Um, but we went around the we run around the table. And it was remarkable the percentage of pastors in that room who had a sick wife and or a straying adult child. Now you might say, well, pastor, given, you know, given the age that you are and given the situation of the culture, many people, have, many people who love the Lord have, have straying adult children. That's true. But the percentage of sick wives in particular made an impression on me. It, it, was, it was almost as if some kind of intentional strategy had, had been launched. So pray for your pastor. Pray for his family. Secondly, pray for your pastor as part of your intercession for the body of Christ as a whole. In verse 18, Paul talks about making supplication for all the saints and also for me. That's good balance. All the saints and also for me. We mustn't pray for our pastor in any kind of possessive or competitive sense. We must pray for him as a particular part of our intercession for the body of Christ as a whole. Again, this is the Apostle Paul being aware of the wider spiritual conflict. The devil is always trying to divide and conquer. 
Richard Koken says here, this is why church unity matters. We are not to give the devil a foothold with divisions that undermine or stall our world evangelism. Paul knows how destructive it can be when people over-identify with a particular human leader. He had to rebuke the Corinthians strongly for that. He said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Don't identify with me, Paul says. Identify with Jesus. I think it would be fair to say that the evangelical church in North America has never been more divided and more tribal than it is right now. Now, interestingly, before COVID, I would have said that slightly different. I would have said the church in America, the evangelical church in America, has never been more divided and more tribal. I would have given us kind of a, a, a full letter grade better mark before the pandemic. But COVID changed that. Under the pressure of COVID, many of those divisions that originated south of the border came up here. And increasingly, it became common to hear Christians here say, I follow John MacArthur. I follow R.C. Sproul. I follow John Piper. I follow Mark Dever. I follow Doug Wilson. The other end, you can do this game too. I follow Andy Stanley. I follow Rick Warren. Left or right, what blasphemy and nonsense. Was John MacArthur crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Andy Stanley? Who are these people, right? Merely servants through whom you believed. That's how Paul characterizes himself. Paul says, I'm, the, I'm a waiter at the banquet of God, right? I'm the guy in the white thing, the white suit, or not the white suit, that's probably not the right imagery, but I'm the guy in the waiter's outfit with the apron, and I've got a tray, and my job is to bring you bounty and beauty from the table of the Lord. I'm not the focus, and I'm not the meal. And any pastor or leader who presents himself as the focus or the meal is a false teacher. I will say this, and I'll say it carefully. The amount of hero worship that some pastors and leaders are content to absorb is deeply concerning. As pastors, we need to say, get your eyes off of me and get them on Jesus. Pray for me with respect to my service of him. Pray that through me, others would be brought to a delight, to a faith, to a trust, to a loving relationship with Jesus. Don't pray for the expansion of my ministry or my kingdom or my reach or my influence. Pray for my service to Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul wanted. He said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul says, I don't mind being an illustration, but I will not be the focus of your faith and adoration. You see the difference? Of course your pastor should illustrate 
what it looks like to follow Jesus, but he cannot become the focus of your loyalty and obedience. That's got to be Jesus. So pray for Pastor Paul and pray for all pastors and pray for all parents and all Christian leaders generally. Pray that they would illustrate the way of Jesus and not obscure it. Pray that they would commend the way of Jesus and never discredit it. Pray for them. Pray for all of us. Pray that the church of Jesus Christ as a whole would get the focus off of human beings and onto Christ who for the sake of the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Praise the Lord. So pray for your pastor in the context of your prayers for the body of Christ as a whole. And pray for your pastor with a particular focus on his preaching of the gospel. That's our third takeaway from the passage. Paul said, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. What a wonderful phrase, the mystery of the gospel. I'm sure you've been told before that Paul uses that word mystery, musterion, in a particular way. He refers to things that are hidden in plain sight in the Old Testament that become gloriously clear as we look back on the Old Testament through the lens of Christ's finished work. The gospel is always there. The gospel is in the Old Testament. You perhaps can see in my Bible these uh, four little purple tabs. I am uh, a devoted RMM Bible reader. I don't know if you have a Bible reading plan here at your church or if you command that or if you think it legalistic. I, I should have asked before I started down this trail. But uh, I love the RMM Bible reading plan, and I think it's wonderful. And here's what I've learned. I've been using it since 2012. Here's what I've learned. Every time you read through the Bible, so every time you start at the, you know, the left cover, the Adam and Eve story, and every time you get to the Revelation cover, every time you, because you've got to read a long way in your Bible before you get to Jesus. Have you noticed that? I mean, three quarters of your Bible, it might be four-fifths, three quarters to four-fifths of your Bible is Old Testament. And that's, a, it takes a long time to get through all of that and get to Jesus, but then when you get to Jesus and you read all of what he said and you've got all of that in fresh in your mind, everything he said makes more sense to you. Because when you just read Jesus, if you skip and you're like, well, I got myself a 1,400-page book, what makes better sense than for me to start at page 1,112? If you start at page 1,112, you always feel like you're missing half the conversation, don't you? But, it, but here's what happens. So you read all this stuff, you get to Jesus, all of a sudden you understand what he's saying, and then you finish the whole story, you get life, death, resurrection, you get his ministry, you get revelation, boom, and then you go back and you hit Genesis again, and all of a sudden, now, not only did you understand Jesus better, now looking back at Genesis through Jesus, you understand Genesis better. And it just keeps going and going and going. That's what I mean when I say reading the Bible backwards. Take, for example, Genesis 3.15. We're talking about seeing Genesis back better. Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve uh, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could be like God, deciding right and wrong for themselves. God spoke to the devil, spoke to the serpent who deceived them. 
And he said, I will put enmity. Enmity means constant warfare. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right? Well, that's the gospel. Scholars actually call that the protevangelion, the first giving of the gospel. And it happens in Genesis chapter 3. That's on the first page of your Bible. And if you look at that verse through the lens of the life and ministry of Jesus, there is no way you could miss it. We are in constant warfare with the seed of the devil. That's literally what Paul just said in Ephesians chapter 6. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not battling against other children of the woman. We're battling against the offspring of the evil one. That's our battle. But the gospel in Genesis 3.15 goes on to say that at some point in the future, their future, our past, at some point in the future, a child will come, a seed of the woman, someone will be born, a real human being will enter the human story as a champion and defeat our enemy at some cost to himself. My friends... That is Jesus. You can't miss it when you read your Bible backwards. Jesus is the champion who enters the story and faces our enemy, like David, defeating the giant and welcoming us to share in the spoils of his victory. That's, that's what happens as you keep going back. You start seeing the gospel Everywhere, And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, pray for me that I would be able to do that for people, that I would be able to read the Bible and show them the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to pray for our pastors who are tasked with doing that. We need to pray for ourselves as contemporary hearers because modern-day evangelicals have become very lazy in their hearing. We have a sort of spiritual glaucoma we only want to see the red letters, the easy bits. We don't want to do the work of seeing Jesus on every page of the Bible. We have trimmed the gospel down to the center bits, the center bits about the cross and the empty tomb and the confession of sin and the holding on to Christ. Those are the sweetest bits of all, but they aren't the whole, and they often don't make sense if we skip the mass of the gospel in order to feed on the marrow of the gospel. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z, American pronunciation, of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians, and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel, and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. That's exactly right. The gospel is not just the ABCs. It is the A to Zs. It is the whole story. And by reading that story and understanding that story and unpacking that story and applying that story, people are saved and sanctified and equipped for life and ministry. 
brothers and sisters, preaching the gospel is spiritual warfare. When the disciples returned from their gospel preaching trip in Luke 10, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Do you understand that wherever the gospel is preached, the devil's arm is shortened? That is true in our homes. That is true in our churches. That is true in our cities. That is true in our culture. So pray for your pastor. Because the more he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ from every page of Holy Scripture, the more the devil will rage. And then lastly, pray for your pastor with a concern for boldness in difficult circumstances. Paul says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. As I mentioned, Paul wrote this letter from prison in Rome, and that's why he calls himself an ambassador in chains. Paul was in Rome waiting for his trial before Caesar. Nero Caesar, the man who later became famous for using Christians as lanterns in his garden. Pray for me, Paul says that words may be given to me when I have opportunity to speak. What exactly does one say to a homicidal maniac who happens to be the most powerful man in the world? What is the passage for that? It's a good question. Thankfully, there was a good promise to go along with that question. Jesus had said to the disciples in Luke 12, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had already promised to do for Paul what Paul asks his people to pray would be done. You catching that? Jesus said, when you're in this sort of scenario, the Holy Spirit will come and will help you. Paul says to his people, pray for me that when I'm in those sorts of scenarios, I will have help from God to speak as I ought. Are you seeing that? Apparently, you have to claim through prayer even the things that God has indicated a willingness to give you. You say, well, pastor, you sound a little Pentecostal right now. No, 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 no. This is what happens when you read the Bible. Because who said that? James said that. James said, sometimes ye have not because ye ask not, right? God wants to help your pastor preach the gospel. God intends to help your pastor preach the gospel, but you still need to pray for God to help your pastor preach the gospel. That's how God works. I love the imagery of prayer that we find in Revelation 8. This is beautiful. This is a picture so this is, this is something you just have to visualize. Listen, you can close your eyes and listen. Don't fall asleep, but you can close your eyes. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. Are you seeing that? Here's the picture. The picture is that as prayers go up, 
providential action comes down. I don't know if you've ever been to the water park at Canada's Wonderland. Almost all water parks have one of these things. They're absolutely marvelous as sermon illustrations. They're terribly uh, chilling things if you happen to stumble under one. Uh, but you know the, the big bucket they, they typically have at water parks. And uh, it's there to trap old people who are there with their children. And the children know about it, but the old people don't. And, uh, and so what happens is uh, sometimes in some water parks, the water just drips into this giant bucket that's up there. And then when it hits the, the fill line, it tips over on, onto all the old people. Um, but in, in other water parks, like the one at Great Wolf Lodge, the kids actually get like hoses, like fire hoses, so they can fill it up. And then they will like call their parents and be like, help, I'm drowning. And, and you come and then, then they time it so that it lands on you. All these things are quite distressing, but serve as wonderful illustrations of the spiritual principle being set forth in Revelation chapter 8. Can you visualize that? Can you visualize your prayers going up into a bucket? And when it reaches a certain fill line, the providential actions of God determined from all eternity are let loose as agents of change and power on the earth. What's the point of that picture? The point is that your prayers matter. They do. They matter particularly during seasons of difficulty. The last three years have been by far the most difficult years in living memory. For, for everyone, but for pastors in, in particular. Uh, I've had the experience on multiple occasions, and I don't think it's just me, because sometimes I just see other pastors saying this to each other as well, but when pastors, because of course we weren't doing a lot of traveling or going to conferences for the, you know, two and a half, but almost three years that COVID really was a factor there. And so when you see a pastor friend that you haven't seen in three years, first sentence out of their mouth is, man, you went gray. Yeah. It was a difficult season. You know, one of the most common questions that I got from folks over the course of COVID was, do I think that COVID-19 is a sign of the end times? Like, are, are we in the end times? And of course, I was always able to produce some kind of an accurate timeline that would indicate exactly when the Lord would return. No, I never did that. But I would say, you know, of course, I have no idea whether we're in the end times. Uh, I, I said in one sense, of course, we are, and I have no idea whether COVID is, is a particular event that's going to be used. I, I, I said, I prefer to think of it as a birth pang. Whether it's the last birth pang or just one in a long series, it is certainly an agonizing experience that is better positioning the world to receive the promised coming of Christ. It is certainly that. And I would say it was also a stress test. And I think in that sense it was a kindness. I think, to be perfectly honest with you, it would have been unkind for God to, to you know, bring the last chapter of human history on the fat, self-indulgent, ill-prepared church of 2019. COVID was a stress test. It told us where we were weak. It told us where there was work to be done. It told us where things need to be shored up. It was a stress test and a dress rehearsal. I had a friend uh, during the, in the middle of the pandemic. He had kind of a, a wider look. He was involved in, the, in a denomination, and he was seeing churches from all across 
the country. And he said, I'm convinced of this, that what's happening right now is that through the course of COVID, the Canadian evangelical church is getting smaller at the margins and stronger at the core. Churches that weren't preaching the gospel, churches that weren't praying, they were dying out. Maybe that's a good thing. You know, some, sometimes you have to clear a little, dare I say, dead wood for things to grow. But churches that were preaching the gospel and that were praying were actually getting stronger under the stress of the pandemic. He was seeing it all across the country. I've seen it as well. COVID was a call back to essentials. And it was also a call to prayer. I wonder if you received it as such. Because if COVID was a dress rehearsal and the greater battles are still to come, then the only pastors likely to survive and thrive in that future are those whose churches have been awakened to their duty. COVID taught all of us that we can't do this. Everyone in particular learned that lesson, but pastors, I think, more than most. We can't do this. Pastoral ministry was impossible before COVID, but some of us were too arrogant to know it, right? But after COVID, I think most of us, if not all of us, understand. Who is sufficient for these things? A number of years ago, the Lord put it on my heart to pray for your Pastor Paul every Wednesday morning. I pray that the Lord would make him a pillar in the house of the Lord. And I don't pray that just because he's strangely tall. I pray that because there is something of the Lord's purpose around Paul. And I have felt it in some kind of undefined way. And so I pray for that every Wednesday morning. I pray in a variety of ways, but I pray specifically for that. And I'm wondering today if I can ask you to join me in that commitment. I'm not asking rhetorically. I'm asking actually. The Apostle Paul was not too proud to ask that of his people, and so I am choosing to be so bold as to ask it of you. Would you right now commit in your heart to praying for Pastor Paul every Wednesday morning? Would you do that? Pray for Paul. Pray for his family. Pray for his witness. Nothing takes the steam out of our gospel progress quite like a pastoral scandal. So pray for his witness. Pray for his wisdom. Pray for his endurance. COVID took a lot of tread off pastor tires. There were a lot of pastors who were thinking, yeah, I could probably do this until I'm 70, or now thinking, I could probably do this until Thursday. Pray for his endurance. And pray most especially for his preaching of the gospel. Pray that he would preach it boldly, clearly, convictionally, and with power. In good times and in bad. In this pulpit, in the public square, and if necessary, from prison or wherever, 
the Lord in his providence may ordain. Will you join me in that? Then let's do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to sit under your word. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of godly leadership. Lord, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, it says that the gifts he gave were, and then it lists leaders. Lord, we are not inclined to think of it this way in our culture because we have a bit of a default bias against leadership, but leaders are a gift. Now, of course, Lord, we know that bad leaders are a curse. Most of the greatest pain that we experience in church life comes as a result of contact with bad leaders. But Lord, the abuse of a thing is not the negation of a thing. It is simply a reminder of the power of a thing. And so, Lord, we pray right now for good leadership in this church. I pray this for Paul. I pray this for all the lay elders. I pray this in a general way for all the parents who are exercising leadership in their homes. But particularly, I pray it for Paul. Lord, I pray that you would gather around him an army of prayer warriors who would be as Aaron and her to Paul as he stretches forth his arms in ministry over this congregation and over this city. I pray for folks to take that on today as a duty and a calling and as, as a gift and that it would result in faithful, fruitful, Jesus honoring gospel ministry going forth from this place for years and decades to come. And I pray that now in Jesus' wonderful name.